everyone. This is the Liverpool University's Centre for Innovation Education podcast and we have got Treasure Island Pedagogies episode 7 with educational developers and it's very exciting to have you all here. Thank you very much for coming. I think this idea is that we're going to talk about our Treasure Islands. It's where you spend precious contact time with students and what you might do there. So we've all asked you to think about a light bulb moment, a teaching prop or a pedagogy that you might bring to this island and also a luxury item. So let's hear what you all have to say. Luis, can I call on you first? Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, thanks, Tunde. So my name is Louise Drum. I am a lecturer in Edinburgh Napier University. Just a bit about my background, my home discipline, I suppose if you'd call it that, was English literature as a my first degree. But but actually my my home culture is more based in theatre and I was doing more theatre during my undergraduate degree than I was doing studying. So that might account for the fact that I spent a few years out of academia after that point and, and I worked in theatre. But I was also tinkering along with computers as well. And I went back about 10 years later and did a computing MSc in Glasgow. And from that, I ended up working in universities, mainly as a learning technologist, and I spent many years doing that, supporting lecturers in their use of technology and through other things like uh, doing secondments as an academic developer and doing a little bit of lecturing. I ended up doing a PhD in education technology and somehow I have ended up back at Edinburgh Napier University where I worked for a number of years as a lecturer and I'm working in the Department of Learning and Teaching Enhancement. So that's my role at the moment. Yeah, thanks Louise. A very rich and wonderful journey. Okay, thank you, Michael. Hello everybody. I'm uh, Michael Flavin and I'm a senior lecturer at King's College London. In common with Louise, I was originally an English Lit student. I did a degree, Masters and PhD, and was lecturing first at a post-92 university and then at the Open University. While working at the Open University, I became interested in education because of the very distinctive nature of the Open University as an institution. So I did a second master's in online and distance education with the OU, really got into it much to my own surprise and therefore ended up doing a second doctorate in technology enhanced learning in higher education. Uh, went to King's College London in 2007, do a lot of interesting things around innovation there, developing both new mo modules and programs and looking at innovative pedagogies, modes of delivery, to learn and teach within those programs and now uh, publish as well in predominantly in technology enhanced learning, the occasional bit in English lit as I still keep my hand in to a minor extent. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Michael. I love these backpacks that just keep filling with, with all the journeys and the uh, different disciplines and ideas. Thank you. OK, we have another Michael. Yes, very good afternoon. Michael Kozakowski is my name and I'm the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning at the Central European University, the CEU, which is uh, formerly of Budapest and is now predominantly in Vienna, although we still have a, a presence in Hungary. And I, I guess my own disciplinary background is that of a historian, and I sort of rose up through the ranks of, of historians. I did a little bit of work in the history of education, uh, but I'll be honest, that was only part of it. And so actually it was just as much my work on issues of, of race and class uh, that brought me to an education department in the UK, uh, together with having worked at uh, several institutions across the world. And so I think 
uh, really that diversity of teaching experiences got me to think about what is it that we do as educators. And so that was a re really rewarding experience and the education department also ha had an opportunity to work with initial teacher training. And that's what brought me uh, sort of that combination over to the CEU uh, where I'm currently serving as director. So uh, we're a small unit, but we have a, a robust uh, postgraduate certificate program, uh, mostly for PhD students. Uh, we support faculty and we mentor postdocs um, and then do some research as well. Great, lovely to have you here, Michael, as well from Vienna. Okay, Vicky? So I'm Vicky Dale. I'm a senior academic and digital development advisor at the University of Glasgow. And I think I follow on quite nicely there from Michael because I trained as an archaeologist originally, graduated from the University of Glasgow. And then I did a master's at the University of Southampton where I specialise in multimedia, the sort of design and theory of multimedia. And that led me into becoming an educational technologist. Um, first briefly at UCL as a research assistant, I created some materials. Then at Glasgow Vet School, it's, it's uh, now the School of Veterinary Medicine. And I did my PhD there in veterinary education, looking at the wider learning and teaching methods. And then after that, I managed to um, get a post at the Royal Veterinary College, where I taught on the PG cert for veterinary education. And then obviously coming back to Glasgow, which was lovely, I now teach on the PG CAP postgraduate certificate in academic practice. So like other people, it's a bit of a multidisciplinary journey. Um, and, and I think quite often people don't intend to become academic developers. It's just something that happens. You bring your different skills and experiences, um, but it's a nice job to have. Yeah, I'm fascinated by all these journeys for that reason. I think it's so interesting. OK, so thank you for, for the introduction. So let's go over to our treasure islands. So what would be, I know, especially in the jobs and all these trajectories that you just explained, there will be and there would have been lots of light bulb moments already for you. But can you just pick out one and tell us, you know, the, by light bulb moments, we mean when you fed the, the students, whether they were learners, whether they were other staff participants, when they felt they were getting it. And can you describe that in a, what made that happen? So I think um, for my light bulb I can only describe it as a very slow burning light bulb and I think that's the nature of the, the kind of teaching that I do. I, I lead on our MSc in blended and online education and um, a lot of the concepts and ideas are quite slow burn because people are applying what they're doing to their practice and um, and oftentimes many of my students are also my colleagues as well. Um, and and I think uh, what happens um, if I can identify any any number of things, I think there's been a number of of times in the past year where things that I have been teaching for a long time have suddenly come back and I've seen my former students or my current students speaking uh, in the language um, of maybe uh, critically thinking about digital tools, thinking about relationships that we have with technology and through technology and and at the kind of the opposite of the quick shiny tool fixing a problem as a, as a way of teaching with digital technologies. And I think there's been a number of times where those very slow conceptual changes have sort of come back and, and you realise the impact that the language which we use when we talk about education, teaching through technology, higher education and the importance of centering people, humans, and the importance of centering care. And I think that's one thing in particular in, in my institution I've seen coming to the fore this year is, is uh, primarily after, for example, lockdown, 
thinking about the care and the pastoral aspects of students. And that has to be very explicitly done in an online situation, whereas it might have been a lot softer and more around the edges within a face to face situation. But the situation people found themselves in meant that it had to be much more explicit. Great. I mean, I love so that you have these moments in, in yourself and you yes, when you had those slow, when you recognize those slow burning moments. But that's a lovely metaphor. In a sense, it's a bit like gardening, isn't it? When you sow the seed and you slowly, you know, seeing the result of it. I, I love that idea of the slow burning. Any other either reflections? Anything resonates or anyone wants to have a go with your light bulb moment? Yeah, I'm just following on from what Louise said there about uh, slow burning light bulb moments. And that resonates very much with me as well. So my light bulb moment, I think I'm going to talk about our PGCAP course, um, which is Creative Pedagogies for Active Learning. And Dr Natalie Sheridan and I run that course. We deliberately designed it to, to create some dissonance, to introduce people to unfamiliar pedagogies. So we've got object-based learning, digital storytelling and learning landscapes. And we designed the course so that it's underpinned by narrative storytelling arc. So we, we sort of designed that moment of dissonance or confusion as people are introduced to unfamiliar pedagogies and think, how can we apply this to our practice? But what happens is students have, or participants, they're teachers, you know, but there are students as well. They have their light bulb moment when they're doing their assessment and particularly when they get feedback on the assessment from their peers and when they do their final showcase event, because that's when things start to slot into place. And as Louise said, that's where people realise how they can apply these pedagogies in their own uh, disciplinary context. Can you give an example of that kind of feedback that really then transforms their understanding or... I think it's it's not a specific example of feedback as such. I mean, peer feedback plays a role in terms of students are going through the same journey so they can give each other helpful feedback and see things from a different, perhaps different disciplinary perspective. But I think it's what's involved is time. Time's needed for people to just um, get that feedback and then reflect on it, particularly when they're engaged in writing the critical mm -hmm. reflections. That's when things come together. And I think when you're learning anything new or you're applying a new pedagogy, you need time, don't you? You need feedback and you need time. So I think these are really important things. That's great. Thanks, Vicky. And I think that's the idea of the time and space for learning, that you can't just hurry up. There is no, what's the opposite of slow cooker? You know, the one, the high pressure cooker, the one, one pot hot. There's no, no shortcut for learning unless you watch The Matrix. Okay, yeah, that's really useful. Thanks, Vicky. What about Michael? Any either of the Michael? What about your light bulb moments? The one I thought of in particular was during my time at the Open University, I did quite a lot of work with students in prison and students in secure psychiatric institutions. And since I've come to King's, I've continued to do a little bit of that work on behalf of the Open University. Just, I suppose, very selfish reasons. I mean, you really do feel like you're making a difference to someone's life. The, a, a recent light bulb, a student I've been working with who in his teenage years was convicted of a crime at the very severe end of the judicial spectrum. And his most recent piece of work on page one knowingly referenced Foucault, Derrida, Lacan, there was one other. And you just get the light bulb is more mine than the students because you just get the sense of one, how thin the line is between that world and your world. I could write trip advisor reviews for prisons in London and the southeast of England. 
And I still find even to this day, having done it for about 15 years, you still get a kind of a frisson and not a comfortable one when you enter some of these establishments. But also you just think as teachers, all you really need to do is just how do you create the supportive structure? Students can have light bulb moments all the time. And I think it's I don't think it's a correct conception to think that somehow as teachers we're the necessary catalyst for this, because I think there's there's a kind of a vertical assumption about the learning relationship in that that I'm not comfortable with. I think students can have brilliant light bulb moments all the time. All we need to do is to create the supportive structures in which people can flourish. And when I see, I mean, I've given one instance there of, of a particularly precocious student, but that's not the only time that I've worked with a student in prison who's who's shown that they can do that and just get a sense if that human being, which is what they are, had had different support structures at an early stage. It's a trite comment, but I don't think it's an invalid one. They really could have had very different outcomes without all that much having changed in the support structures. And I see the absence of the support structures as a contributory factor for why they went the other side of the line. So my my most important light bulb moments as an educator, I think, have happened working with students in prison and secure psychiatric units. Mm. I mean, you gave me goosebumps when you were describing that, you know, that student and, and the journey. And yeah, it mu must be rewarding. And I, I suppose that what your what you were talking conjured up in me is, you know, if you prepare the room with a light bulb, let's say, or put the switches there for the students and let them, you know, let them discover it, I guess, could be probably a nice analog for what you were saying. It's, it's that putting the support structure in and, and this idea that you can prepare two same rooms, but the light bulb might be quite different for students as well. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Michael? I'm sure I, I don't have anything quite as inspirational to, to, to follow up on that, but something that perhaps resonates with some of the points that um, have been made by, you know, about sort of student-centered learning, about assessment, about support. Um, and, you know, sort of in its own way, I used to in the US be sort of a, a one man show. I was sort of the module lead for all modules, even when, you know, even when there were several of us, I, I was really uh, sort of, you know, on my own, I, I should say, um, in many good ways. And so one of the things I always prided myself was giving very detailed instructions on my assessment and, and trying to make clear uh, to students what I expected of them um, in that. And when I moved to the UK and was no longer the module lead, um, or even in instances where I was, but it was either way a different sort of cultural context, I found that I lost control over that assessment piece. And many of the instructions uh, were not uh, how I would formulate them. We were grading holistically rather than uh, via a rubric. And I still got the question, Michael, what do I need to do for a first? And I realized that all of this time I had been sort of relying on assessment design and, and trying to be explicit um, to try to answer that question, even as I assuaged fears that I'm really not here uh, for the mark, I'm, I'm here for your learning. And when I lost control of that assessment piece, and but still really cared about that social inclusivity piece, I found that I focused, um, I still focus on trying to make explicit those hidden assumptions. But even more than that, I started to explore what are the skills that we want students to develop and what do I need to do to support students in developing those skills? Because that's what we were promising, that we were promising that we would help people 
uh, not just be more knowledgeable, but be you know better in and that and analyzing and better in supporting those arguments, better in researching, better in communicating. And what did that actually mean? Um, and what did that mean for me uh, as a support and a facilitator in that process? So not having those training wheels, not having those props actually made me, uh, I think, a better educator at that moment. Yeah, that's that's again, thank you for sharing that, Michael. So in terms of the next question, I don't know if you if you wanted to say anything about that, because I, I really like that um, move away, as you said, from assessment driven to, you know, working about how the learning happens. And I think there is a lot that would resonate with that as well, especially in the pandemic when we had to rethink the assessment and how students are assessed as well. So if we are on this island now, and if you know that this podcast format has been very much influenced by Desert Island, this where people can choose eight discs. So slightly unfairly, um, um, we've asked you to just choose one teaching prop or pedagogy to take with you to this island, the Treasure Island with the students. So can I ask you, all of you, what, what would your teaching prop or pedagogy be? Well, I suppose mine would be a technology that's pretty old, but it makes me think about how we think and how we learn. And it is it's paper and pencils and lots of paper. And I think um, it's interesting in the way that we have a narrative at the moment around how you know, we're responding to technology and how information, you remember the information superhighway, anyway, things like that and how our understanding of knowledge is and where education sits now within this this infrastructure we now have. But of course, there probably was a, you know, a shift from memorising, storytelling, songs, poetry into writing things down, of course. And I can't imagine not having the ability to scribble stuff down or asking students to scribble stuff down. And and I'm a, I'm an adherent to dual coding theory in that, you know, we have the ability to communicate via both visual and verbal means and it, it, it the inputs and outputs are different. And that and when they're working beautifully together, the just the right amount of verbal stimulation along with the, the, the right amount of visual stimulation that it, it can um, bring about effective long term memory uh, retention both in terms of, I suppose, producing, uh, if we think about students producing something, but also in terms of communicating. So things like sketchnoting and, and so on. So it's one of the things I, I try to encourage my students is about taking notes, um, writing notes, doodling, scribbling, and th as a means for processing information. And then how would you then communicate that to someone else using not just text or or, or, or a single medium, finding to fi uh, ways to do use dual coding and ways of communicating. So it's it's both inwards and outwards, I suppose. Brilliant. I like that you're making use of technology in multitude of ways already. Brilliant. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, it, it could be that in the future we might have situations where the, it's the paper and pencil will be the will be on a special shelf, not necessarily available that easily. Whereas you're gonna you 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 have your mobiles on you and you're wearing your technology and things like that. Well, I'm just waiting for the the you know the injection of my 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 silicon chip into my arm or my my brain, so <laughs> <laughs> I won't need to Google anymore. Yeah. Anyone else? I was also thinking about sort of ways to get beyond text because I, I think we're so trained uh, both as students as academics to to really th prize 
our textual or our written expressions as the ultimate proof of what we know and what we learn. And, and one of the things I like to do, and I have no artistic skills whatsoever, uh, but I like to use art images and just visual images generally. And I find that students jump first to the interpretive question. They think that what I'm asking of them is to find out what the secret meaning is and tell me what the right meaning is. And actually, the, the question that I ask first is much simpler, and that is, what do you see? And it begins partly with, you know, what we know already um, and, and what we start observing. But I think it's in that, that sort of that close observation um, that it's not just a, a sort of a more democratic form of participation. Everyone can tell me what they see in a painting, right? It's red, it's large, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's triangular in shape. Um, but we need to first start gathering that evidence and just hold off on those bigger questions. We will get to all these debates and interpretations. But first, that there is something about this world that, you know, I think is really precious and that all of us have the ability to start observing and then slowly, you know, in a guided process, start making some conclusions or at least some, you know, analysis of. Um, and so I, I like this idea that Louise was is talking about, of thinking about different media and what by playing around with them and just holding off with the, you know, the typewritten assessment, uh, what do we get um, by that that space? Uh, I think, Vicky, you described it as of dissonance um, and that in between this. And so I, I really like this sort of this combination of things that we've been surfacing uh, so far in this conversation. And another thing I think that you touched on is echoing what you, you all said earlier about that slowing that process down and really taking notes and observing and understanding. So that that's interesting. Yeah. Vicky? Yes, I think what I had to say follows on quite nicely what Michael was saying there when you said, what do you see? Slow down and start observing. Because the pedagogy that I take um, to Treasure Island is object-based learning. Um, and I might not even have to take any objects because I'm an archaeologist. I might discover some of them. <laughs> um, object-based learning lends itself to inquiry-based learning. So Michael was saying, what do you see? You know, we might say, what does it look and feel like? Um, what's it made of? Is it man-made? You know, who made it? When? What was it for? Um, how do we interpret that object from different perspectives? Um, and this is a method that I came across uh, when I was at UCL and Helen Chatterjee and colleagues were working in this area. In fact, they innovated really a lot in this area um, in their museum, one of the museums there. Um, and we've worked with our colleagues at University of Glasgow's Hunterian Museum, and they've been really helpful. Um, in previous years, um, what they did was they looked at various objects from their collections. So we had art, we had scientific objects, we had... Um, you know, anatomical specimens. We had, we had all sorts of things. Um, and people would come with their different disciplinary lenses and kind of almost um, interview the objects. Uh, so that worked really nicely. Obviously, last year, because of the pandemic, that's been done virtually. So we've linked to virtual objects. And, and luckily, a lot of museums now have their collections online. It's not as tangible, but it is more accessible. I love the, what you said about the different disciplines then questioning the same object. So was that then other students or other people were there at the same time learning from those conversations? Exactly. So one of the sort of conversations we had, and this was led by our colleagues at the Hunterian Museum largely, was how can you take an everyday object? So for example, a packet of crisps, and how can you look at that through different 
um, disciplinary lenses. So a packet crisps, it's not exactly a historical artifact. It's not very valuable. But, you've, you know, you've got the nutrition values of the food. Not very much, but we all like crisps, let's face it. Um, <laughs> you've got the design aspects for the marketing. Um, you've got the distribution. There's so many different angles you can take when looking at objects um, that it is quite exciting. And also, if you have a collection of objects, you could perhaps um, do a group work project where each student perhaps takes a, a one of the objects, researches it, and then they combine the outcomes of that research. So it's very versatile. We just have to think about how we make that accessible, because if we're dealing with physical objects, we might have visually impaired learners. And how do we support that as well? You know, we have to um, you know, we have to convey that information or that experience in a different way that's equitable. I think um, one of the things that's just striking me as you speak there, Vicky, and from what Michael said as well, is that I think we're talking around divergent thinking as opposed to convergent thinking. So that idea of moving outwards from a central point rather than uh, diverging onto the correct answer, for example. So it's it's about um, giving students a lot of agency and, and creativity around where they're going, what they're bringing with them and where they then take that. And it's quite it's quite constructivist when you look at it that way. But but it sounds great. It sounds great. And I think it's very topical in today's interdisciplinary, you know, with the world like complex problems and trying to solve huge issues like climate change. And I, I think it's definitely reflecting that as well. That is probably what's needed at the moment. Thanks, Louise. Yeah, that's good to make that point. Michael, what about your teaching prop or pedagogy? I have a teaching prop and it's um, well, it's closest aligned to what Louise said in that she said pen and paper. What occurred to me was a book um, as a, it could be any book, though I have there is one in particular that I think I'd use for the purposes of this exercise. Why I think looked at positively, I think a book is still a magnificent springboard to learning, you know, no matter what you're reading, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. It's just such a catalyst in your hands that can, can lead you to the production of new thoughts, new ideas. I also think it's a good way on a structural level of articulating the limits of what technology enhanced learning has done. I mean, if you think about the rooms we teach in and then think about what the what lecture theatres look like, there's an infamous medieval painting which shows a male professor with a book in his hands, some keen students at the front, disengaged ones at the back. But the architecture of the lecture room was obviously before the printing press. The professor, invariably a man, would read from the book to the assembled audience. And you think, well, that was then, this is now. But the, the rooms we teach in at universities are perfectly well positioned to facilitate that kind of teaching and, and haven't radically changed. And so you think on that structural level, the book as a teaching tool actually exposes how little we've done with technology to actually transform learning. And it will be interesting to see post-COVID whether we regress back to the mean or genuinely treat this experience as a springboard to do something else. I'm, I can't say I'm entirely optimistic on that, but let's wait and see. The specific book I've thought of that I think everyone should take a quick look at is an ABC for Baby Patriots written by Mrs. Frances Eames and published in 1899 by a publisher on the Strand in London, which is where my university is based. And, there, and let's hope the similarity ends there. The first thing to say about it, it's an alphabet book for little children. If you want, if you have little children and you want to teach them the alphabet, this book will do a really good job. It's got big A and little a on every page in both print and handwriting. And then in each case, there's a drawing to illustrate A, B, so on. 
and a verse too. So if I give you A, A is the army that dies for the queen. It's the very best army that ever was seen. B has a picture of a black person on their knees holding an umbrella over a white person eating a pleasant meal and has B stands for battles by which England's name has forever been covered with glory and fame. Now, depending on where you stood in relation to British militarism, you may have a very different perspective on the experience of it. So I think you've got its primary utilitarian function. I promise you, if you want to teach a small child the alphabet, this book will do the job. But yet beneath that surface level, if you look at it ideologically, and you look at the pictures that accompany these texts as well. And there's a couple of digitized editions online, one hosted by the University of Florida. So you can see the whole thing for free. As you're flicking through the pages and you're going, oh my God, and you reach a point by the time you get to about even the letter E, you're thinking, well, at least it can't get any worse. And then you turn the page and go, no, I was wrong. Uh, and you just have this experience throughout. So I think it's a fascinating ideological text. This, you know, we're looking at 1899 here. The scramble for Africa has happened. Quite possibly a high, you know, Treaty of Berlin has happened. Scramble for Africa has happened. A high watermark for British imperialism. And what that means for consciousness and perception. I do not think that the writer set out to write a consciously political book. Yet if we bring a, a fairly standard set of analytical tools to it, we can find things in that text that I think genuinely illuminate a worldview that was prevalent in 1899 at the high water mark of the British Empire. So you can teach a child the alphabet and the high water mark of British colonialism at the same time, and that's going to occupy the long winter evenings no matter who you are, really. I think that's an interesting example. And, and for me, I'm thinking about object-based learning again, and the idea that objects, even a book, is very much a product, product of its own time and, and the factors that influence it. Um, and I think what's what's enlightening about what, what Michael said there was that we bring a different lens to it. We bring a different perspective. And that's what object-based learning is about. We, we see things from a, a different perspective. Every student will look at an object in a different way. Um, and that's the power of an object. So. For example, in our course, our, our museum uh, colleagues will bring out uh, perhaps ethnographic collection material, which is very contentious, as you know. There's a lot of, of debate about, you know, who should own this this material. It should really be repatriated to, to people, um, sent back to, to people and, 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 you know, where they came from rather than, than Britain owning all this stuff. But we are able to, to bring these viewpoints to it and be more critical of how things were done previously. So I think that nicely dovetails with, with that example of object-based learning and, and with the book that you were talking about, Michael. And I think what, again, what seems to be a common theme with, within your what, what you said, what you're teaching pro pedagogies is that critical academic literacy development. So in, in fact, you know, there is the object, but how you approach it is very much dependent on, let's say, either your discipline or, but it's, it's developing in students that critical analysis of of that how you go about it so yeah that that's great so now we've got our islands and obviously you've been very busy teaching and getting students to have their light bulb moments and working with lots of lovely objects and approaches and it's time now to have a bit of relaxation and off time of teaching time duty so what would be your luxury item 
to take to your island to help you with that. Michael, you were obviously enjoying that moment. <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking my, my sort of uh, indulgence would it does not easily fit on the island. It, it has to be my piano, um, okay. but I really can't imagine other than sort of with parachutes or, or with boats. I'm not quite sure how it comes to the island, so I, I might content myself with a pair of trainers. Well, we might, I don't know, with tree branches, with some, I don't know whether you might find some engineers on the island or some um, music makers, but yeah, so is, is there a piano running? Yes. Not too dissimilar to Michael. Um, I'm I'm quite handy as in, you know, DIY and, and building things and re repurposing things if I have the right tools. So one of the things I'd quite like is the materials to build a ukulele <laughs> because I I ran a, a course in my university last year um, for staff where we sent out ukuleles and I, we, we did an online course of teaching ukuleles and we're going to we're going to open it up this year and we're going to have it run it again in the summer. So watch this space if you want to join in and learn how to play ukulele. But I'd quite like to have something I can imagine myself sitting under a palm tree whittling away at bits of beautiful wood and shaping them uh, meaningfully into something that then could I, I could actually practically use and practice for my uh, ukulele playing on. Lovely, that's brilliant. <laughs> and then other, so other people can enjoy that as well. Yeah, <laughs> Vicky? Yep, so I think um, last year I probably would have said, or the year before last, I probably would have said um, an art kit of, of brushes and paper and so on, because I think art is so relaxing. It's just therapeutic, really. Um, and I really enjoy community art classes. Um, but of late, um, the thing I'm more involved in for, for relaxation is playing board games, um, particularly of the Sherlock Holmes type genre. So 221B Baker Street. And then um, I've got another game there that's uh, got lots of long cases. So I'm gearing myself up for that one. Um, but I tend to play those collaboratively with people rather than competitively. Um, so, yeah, after we've listened to Michael playing the piano, um, and, and Louise has, has done our DIY and built a shelter and, and built us ukuleles. Um, we can all have a game of uh, 221B Baker Street. Wow, brilliant. <laughs> Quite up for that. Cluedo, I'm a Cluedo fan. So, yeah, that's, yeah, great. Thanks, Vicky. What about Michael Flavin? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a classical guitarist and I'm phenomenally bad at it. Uh, I really don't like to boast, but I think London and the South East has very few guitarists who are worse than me. And I think that if I got plonked onto a desert island with no other distractions, I would have no choice other than to start practicing more conscientiously. And it dawns on me that with other Michael's piano and Louise's ukulele, it could be the start of something quite remarkable. And, and if Vicky would take on the Simon Cowell, Brian Epstein role of, of piloting our careers, and the band was born. <laughs> there you have it. I'm dying here to ask Louise. So what was the uptake? I mean, what was surprising about the ukulele? I mean, did you get the, the vice chancellor to, to partake or who all was part of the ukulele class? So originally the, the idea was conceived as as um, we would run workshops, which was around the idea of being a novice learner. So any member of staff could come along and, and pick up a ukulele and understand actually how hard it is to learn something from scratch and hopefully think about how their, their own students are approaching approaching learning and what, it, what it's like not to not to know what you're doing. Um, so from that point of view, after lockdown happened, we then sent sent them out to, to members of staff who applied. So I think 
we had nearly 20 people, I think, who who got ukuleles and we got people from all, all actually parts of the university and um, not just academics, but professional service staff as well. One of our our, our longest and, and most hardcore kind of ukulele players came from the the, the library and um, and we've had a number of reunions over over Christmas and St. Patrick's Day as well to to have a little jam together on Zoom. But we've never actually met. Um, uh, but well, I'm looking forward to the day when uh, we can all come back together, play our ukuleles and uh, bring our kazoos out and, and have a good old sing song. Is there any particular song that you've played? Oh, we did a whole we did a, a whole three months of going through um, various songs and trying different ways through YouTube videos, through following tabs, through a gen- gently sharing of, of what people are doing. So, so yeah, I couldn't pick out a, a particular one. I think The Cure was quite a big hit, actually. Friday, I'm in love. Good, because we can attach it to this podcast as well as a, as a link. Is there anything, I think that, uh, there has been some subtle bartering because you had lots of ideas that then resonated with, with you each other, but I'm just going to ask anyway, is there any bartering that you can imagine doing with any of the props or pedagogies or light bulb moments that you discussed? I see, Michael, you might be interested in the ukulele idea for your <laughs> institute, maybe. I'm really keen on Vicky's um, object-based uh, learning. I think it sounds really interesting. Um, what I like about it is that sometimes a, a, an object takes the focus away from yourself and from yourself as a student, or, or it brings. It doesn't mean you're starting with a blank page. You actually got something to start with. Um, so it can be it, it can be really nice. So I'm definitely interested if if Vicky's up for a swap. Sounds good. I think my observation was that, you know, we're here and we're kind of in the context of talking about academic development, but there's a kind of undercurrent of, you know, learning technology and we're all very much proponents of technology enhanced learning. But I think it's really interesting that nobody actually suggested a sophisticated piece of technology. So Louise suggested um, a pen and paper. Um, Michael also suggested getting away from text and maybe art images. Um, And Michael Flavin um, suggested a book. And I suggested an object. So none of us actually, I think, I think that reflects the fact that learning is not just about technology. Technology can help mediate that learning, but it's how you use the technology. And I think what's come across very clearly in everybody's account is that emphasis on critical thinking and engagement and actually that constructivist idea of learning that you're, um, you know, you're sort of, yeah, you're engaging with the objects, with the paper, um, perhaps in discussion with other people and you're generating new meaning through that discussion. So it's it's good old fashioned learning and teaching without the technology, I think. Brilliant. I think that's a lovely closure, Vicky. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed um, today's talk and thank you, Louise, Vicky and the two Michaels for coming on, on the podcast and sharing your light bulb moments. And see you on our Treasure Island playing ukulele and reading, running listening to music. Bye for now.